Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Sam Twyford-Moore is a critic, essayist and writer and has contributed to a wide range of publications, including The Monthly and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Today I'm talking to Sam Twyford-Moore about his new book, Castmates, Australian Actors in Hollywood and at Home. Sam Twyford-Moore, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. Sam, the art of divorce seems to be an appropriate place to start any chat about Hollywood. But that title refers to Russell Crowe's auction of his collection of movie memorabilia. What was that event all about? And what did the contents of that auction say about Russell Crowe? That auction happened back in 2018. Uh, It was held down at Carriage Works in Sydney. And I wandered down a little confused, a little bemused, unsure of what I was going to find, and then found this really careful exhibition that Russell Crowe had put together uh, with Southersby to sell off memorabilia, personal art collection, guitars, things that he'd lifted off movie sets, uh, all in aid, supposedly, um, to help fund his divorce, which was a kind of cheeky narrative that he was threading through it. But for me, it just became this really interesting way of looking at the life and work of an actor. And I, I really do have to thank Russell for giving me this template or um, model for what would become Castmates, the book. It was just a cheeky, fun experience, but but had some big questions about the relationship between Australia and Hollywood and, and certainly Russell's place um, in there as well. Did you buy anything? <laughs> I didn't even think to buy anything. I probably didn't have money to buy anything, but there were a few things that didn't sell. Um, one which kicked off the whole book project was uh, there was an Errol Flynn costume that didn't sell. Should have put in a bid for that. I just I, it wouldn't have occurred to me at the time. Well, there's a parade of significant Australian actors to choose from. Castmates tells the story of our relationship with Hollywood through the careers of four Australian actors, each from different and distinct generations. Errol Flynn, Peter Finch, David Gulpilil and Nicole Kidman. Why these four and what do they each represent? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Obviously, Errol Flynn, just as I said, was represented in the Russell Crowe exhibition. So um, that that was the kind of starting point, um, the the exhibitions, the prologue, and then I move into Errol. But in terms of picking four, it was really going, well, can I start? How early can I start? And Errol just being probably the biggest Australian movie star at the start of the 20th century, and then wanting to get up to today, and obviously this isn't a, a dictionary or an encyclopedia, it's a work of narrative nonfiction and a group biography. And then it became trying to find, okay, I could probably do four pretty major biographical works in one book and trying to figure out who from each era would best represent um, the time period that they were working in. And they all kind of overlap in different ways. Errol Flynn and Peter Finch starred in a really awful movie called The Dark Avenger together in 1955. Um, Gopal and Kidman obviously starred in Australia, Baz Luhrmann's epic in 2008, and they sort of wind through each other's work. But the ultimate goal was to tell a story um, about how Australian cinema 
has lost some stars to America, how sometimes they've come back and what that kind of has meant for our own cinema, but also what we've contributed to global cinema. So, um, you know, I kind of see it as a really good value book at the moment because it's essentially four biographies for the price of one. Good value indeed. Let's start with Errol Flynn, the perfect specimen you call him. For me, unsurpassable as Robin Hood, despite my affection for Russell Crowe's version, as swashbuckling off-screen as he was on-screen. Um, but there's been an inordinate amount of discussion about his penis. Uh, but surely we should remember him for more than just that. Yeah, look, I mean, he had a huge life. So it is hard to talk about Errol Flynn without going into his life. And again, this is a work of um, group biography. So it is about the, the lives of the stars as, as, as much as it is about the movies. Although I really wanted it to be about the movies and their performances as much as their lives because I think that was kind of the modus operandi of the book was to watch all of their movies and and kind of do it in a chronological order to try and um, write the life and the culture at the same same time but Flynn's hard not to get overwhelmed by the details of his life because he didn't leave much living unlived um, and he was a complicated figure obviously I try and use him as a way to represent you know, some of the things that were a problem um, for Australia as a young nation, he was, uh, you know, doing some really untoward things in Papua New Guinea in the 1920s before he made it to Hollywood, um, a very early figure of uh, Hollywood scandal with two um, statutory rape cases brought against him in the 1940s. Um, and in the meantime, you have this kind of like, you know, he's so charming, he's so brilliant on screen and just like and remains alive to us in these performances Robin Hood uh, all the westerns he's so great in and so it was trying to keep both of these things in mind at the same time um, while, while writing about this very complicated figure. Should we be better celebrating Flynn's legacy or should it be examined more critically? I mean after all he was a product of the Hollywood star system. I think that's what I've tried to do, you know, in the book at the same time is to to go back and go one of one of the driving animators of writing this book was thinking about what is going to happen to all these movies as time moves forward and by coming up to a bunch of centenaries it won't be too long until it will have been 100 years of Flynn on screen what happens to these movies and how do we encourage people to go back um, and watch them and I'm really passionate about the movies that he was in a lot of them are really great and really stand up um, but then to try and think critically about who he was uh, as, a, as a figure and even as an actor, just, you know, to leave aside the um, political and kind of cultural implications of him as a as a figure, he was an interesting actor. Like he was kind of hammy in some ways, but he was really good at some things. Uh, he really, really wanted to be a better actor. And then I think his drinking got in the way of that. So he's a, he's a fascinating figure, even if you just reduce it um, down to that to the acting and the kind of huge star that he was so he's always worth going back to I think. Uh, a very interesting moment when Errol Flynn crosses paths with Peter Finch his advice to Peter Finch was you're acting don't act I don't act and that's why I'm a star is that why Peter Finch was never a star in the same sense? Yeah never listened to Errol Flynn maybe. <laughs> Um, it was spectacularly bad advice. And I actually genuinely think that Flynn took, uh, sorry, Finch took it on a little bit. Um, he, Finch was extremely passionate and extremely learned about acting. He was very involved in trying to get a national theatre up in Sydney 
from Sydney to go around Australia in the 1940s before he left for London. And he was sort of a bit of a dispassionate um, film actor. He wasn't super enthused by film, but it ended up kind of overtaking his career. And I think at the point that he met um, Flynn on this this movie, The Dark Avenger, um, you know, it was probably a bad time for Flynn to say that to Finch because I think he did kind of give up a little bit after that. You refer to Peter Finch as the solitary walker in Carmad, Los Angeles, the ultimate outsider. And despite winning an Oscar, was he an outsider by choice or by circumstance? Definitely by choice. Um, he was offered a huge contract uh, with Paramount Pictures um, after he did a film called Elephant Walk uh, that was originally to star Vivian Lee, and then uh, Vivian Lee was removed from the film or rather probably removed herself uh, after a bit of a mental breakdown and uh, Elizabeth Taylor replaced uh, Vivian Lee. So it became this huge Hollywood product and was the biggest film that Paramount put out that year. And they really liked Finch. They wanted to sign him and they put a contract in front of him and he turned them down and returned to Britain to star in these kind of sort of middling, you know, mid-century um, British films. But he just hated Hollywood. He really didn't like it there. I think he thought that it was going to be this old world Errol Flynn kind of classy, you know, upper class place. And I think he found sort of a bit of a closed shop by the time that he got there around, you know, around the start of the 1950s. Um, and he was a bit disappointed and didn't want to be there. And then he went back to Britain and then came back later and actually ended up dying there and is buried there now, even though he didn't have much of a taste for it. Has Peter Finch's legacy been reduced to one film network? I really hope not, but I think it has in some respects. You know, that that mad as hell speech that he gives still reverberates around today. And, you know, it's kind of lucky to be remembered for anything. <laughs> but there are so many great films in the background. I mean, apart from the British films, he did come back to Australia in the 1950s and the two films he made here, um, very much The Shirley. The Shirley is an amazing film. and A lovely film, The Shirley. I, I still watch it when it uh, pops up on daytime television. I feel like people should really seek that out if they haven't seen that. It says a lot about Australian masculinity and um, fatherhood and childhood, and it's it's just a beautiful um, film and based on a on a really good novel too. Um, and he made a he made a cowboy movie here, Robbery Under Arms, which is people people don't love that movie, but I actually really enjoy it. He's sort of he's he's all dressed in black, which is crazy to be under the Australian sun in that much um, wearing that much black. Um, but it was a sort of proto of kind of the spaghetti westerns in some ways. So he made some he made some significant films here as well, which hopefully one day we'll see a bit of a revival. Um, you know, hopefully one of the streamers or the NFSA will get interested in reviving those films. One of the aspects of Australian film that you look at fairly critically is the indigenous film industry, and you do that through David Gulpilil very distinctive actor, one of my favourite actors, and very distinctive in the way he moved because, well, he moved like a dancer because he was a dancer. Yeah, absolutely. He was primarily a dancer. I think we kind of forget that about David. And uh, when he was discovered at 15 or 16 um, by the British filmmaker Nicholas Rogue, who, who came out to Australia to make what would become Walkabout, um, he was recommended to Rogue by the Northern Territory government um, because he'd won a couple of Estedfords and obviously just charmed, you know, Rogue and got the part and um, but continued dancing throughout his entire life and just had that kind of physical presence that you, you um, would get only from dancing, I think. 
He was also a wonderful cultural ambassador, uh, either by choice or, again, by circumstance. Uh, I was drawn to this quote, when white people in Australia talk about us, us meaning First Nations people, they say, culture, culture, dance, dance. They don't understand us, speak our language. I want to film the story of my people, how we live and how we used to live in the olden days. Then maybe white people will understand more about us. David got so close to Nelly making a film, his directorial debut in the 19, early 1980s, and it was this amazing transnational story about an American coming to Australia and interacting with the local Indigenous stockmen. They built sets up in the top end, it was funded, and then it all fell over because of bloody tax breaks not getting, not getting legislated in time for them to film it. And so it's this huge lost opportunity, and I was really passionate about going into that history of that lost film within David's chapter because it represented what could have been a hugely historically consequential moment and would have we would be so much further along in terms of First Nations filmmaking now if that had had have happened and it just didn't. Um, so we're still playing a little bit of catch up, I think, um, in terms of that moment being lost. A really terrible moment, I suppose, in in David Gopalil's career, and that's when he crosses paths with Paul Hogan um, in a role for Crocodile Dundee and also in the sequel, which didn't have a happy ending. Um, whatever the financial success of Crocodile Dundee, where did it fail, David Gopalil? Well, I mean, the financial success is part of that story, I suppose. Um, Gopalil signed up to Crocodile Dundee, appears in the film, and the film happens to become the biggest Australian film, both in Australia and in America of all time. That record hasn't been beaten in the nearly 40 years since the film came out, which is in itself amazing. Um, but... You know, the film makes close to $500 million in terms of today's, you know, money, um, taking an inflation. And Gopalil went to Hogan and the the crew behind the film and said, I want a million dollars to be in the sequel. And they they turned him down and they would have totally had a million dollars to give David Gopalil. He was such a star of that first film and cut through for audiences in such a big way that why wouldn't you give him a million dollars to come back? You had it to spare. Um, and again, another setback in terms of, um, you know, where Gopalil could have gone in his career if he was properly remunerated and fairly remunerated. I mean, the sequel is a it becomes a story of, you know, the land councils in the Northern Territory also asking um, for more money from the, from the sequel, um, given how little they were paid in the first film. So it's a telling story. It's obviously a film that's still in the Australian consciousness, um, but I think there are some elements to it that need investigation, and hopefully I've done that in, the, in that chapter. There's certainly some telling moments and some telling words from David himself uh, when referring to Paul Hogan, who says that Paul Hogan never, ever mentions David's name. Yeah, that was such a brutal line and such, such perfectly encapsulates that problem, right, that it's not only financial remuneration, it's also what we now kind of consider sharing the microphone or sharing the platform. Paul Hogan just didn't talk about him afterwards, even though he was so central to the success of that film and um, to First Nations relations through that film as well. Paul Hogan just left him behind. So, um, you know, I think David was so powerful in his words in finding that way to express the problem and the power imbalance within that film. Let's talk about another Australian actor born elsewhere. Our Nicole, Nicole Kidman. Is she truly our Nicole or does she belong to America and to Hollywood? 
I think she belongs to both. <laughs> she's she's a dual citizen and by by birth. Uh, she was born in Hawaii, so she's been been both of ours, our Nicole, for both um, both countries for a long time. But I think you know she's someone who comes later, obviously, than someone like Peter Finch and where that kind of global economy now is more back and forth between countries and she travels back and forth pretty pretty happily. She was only here the other day, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, she's she's someone who um, straddles the two countries really well. And you call her the interpreter. Well, what is she interpreting exactly? That was my cheeky, um, cheeky uh, chapter titles is they're all... Uh, or each of the chapters takes their name from a film that the um, that the person was in, and often probably their least known film because then it doesn't become so obvious <laughs> where I got that title from. Nicole was the most interesting to write about in some ways, just in terms of the logic problem, like trying to figure out how to write about her and trying to understand her. I think because she's the most ubiquitous out of all the subjects, it became really hard to try and figure out where is the in with writing about her. And I finally got it, which was really thinking about her as a very keen student, which I think is key to Nicole, is she's just someone who has always, always, always loved study. She came to acting through um, studying at institutions um, like the Australian Theatre for Young People in Sydney and Phillips Street Theatre. So she was a student actor as a child. Um, and then even when she makes it in Hollywood and is Mrs. Tom Cruise and is starring in these big Hollywood films, she still wants to go to New York and start study at the actor's studio. So the interpreter is probably suggesting that she's someone, even till this day, is always thinking about acting in terms of study and, and that kind of theoretical framework being behind her as well. And that, and that suddenly unlocked everything for me. And I went, OK, I think I know how to write about this person now. That somehow connected to, I guess, the approach of Peter Finch as well, that that uh, dedication to the art of acting? Absolutely, totally. Um, you know, that was one of the revelations for me was really Peter Finch, when he was advocating for the National Theatre, one of the things he wanted as part of that theatre was to actually have a school. And he did teach in Sydney for, for some time, um, including uh, a number of actors, including um, Ruth Cracknell eventually um, studied at that school. And he had an idea for a children's theatre and a lot of the infrastructure and institutions that Nicole encountered in the 80s were sort of the logical conclusion of Peter Finch's advocacy in the 40s and 50s um, that led to ATYP, Phillip Street, that there were these kind of children's school theatres eventually arriving in Sydney, even if they weren't um, directly as a result of um, Peter Finch. He put it out in the ether. <laughs> Is there a case for what could have been in relation to historical investment in the Australian film industry? Have dreams of a sustainable and ongoing film industry been fulfilled or do they remain a pipe dream forever living in that long shadow of Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, another great question. I think I think we had this, we obviously had the, the new wave kind of crest in the 70s after we did have the necessary interventions, first from John Gordon, then Gough Whitlam kind of picking up Gordon's policies and really running with them. And so we do have this fruitful, bountiful time in the 70s. We get a glut of films in the 1980s through those tax concessions, which weren't legislated in time for Golpalil to make his movie, but ended up um, creating this kind of deregulated market. And probably that is the closest Australia has come to competing with at least volume 
of the American market was in the 1980s, but the, you can see that the quality is not there. And then we sort of see that tax break sort of wound back slowly over the 90s and you do see a drop off um, in quantity. And I still think we're in this weird nether zone where it's like those balances between, <laughs> between uh, you know, the, the glut and the drought are sort of still, we're still sort of balancing with what, what is going on here. And I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I've kind of taken the historical approach with the book and I'm sure someone else could come in and really try and figure out where we are and where we should be going. Sam, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Sam Twyford Moore about his new book, Castmates, Australian Actors in Hollywood and at Home. It's published by New South, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.